I hope you like my slide. Um, this picture. I, who, who thinks it's a mountain? Who thinks it's a piece of paper torn apart? Who thinks it's lilac paint slowly dripping down a wall? That's me too, yeah. But I've gone through all the different phases and seasons of belief. So at one time I entertained all those thoughts. Okay, I guess I better get started, right? So the title that I have for the message today is The Peace of God. And I know a lot of people, they like, they like that sort of stuff. And scripture has plenty of that sort of material in it for us because, uh, you know, life can be full of anxiety, worries, stuff like that. What we're going to be doing in pursuing this topic, this concept, this title, is looking at Philippians 4. So this is the fourth in the series of messages that I have put together looking at the book of Philippians. So let's begin by reading the first three verses in Philippians. They actually um, are not about the peace of God. They're about something that's kind of the opposite of the peace of God, people who are butting heads. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So he's kind of referencing all the material that's gone before, which we've talked about in previous weeks. Then he goes on to say, I plead with Yodia, or sorry, Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So they're, they're kind of butting heads here, and we've talked about that as well. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now we get to the real-life circumstances that caused Paul to write this letter in the first place to this congregation in Philippi, who usually go down in most people's minds as a pretty great place because the book of Philippians is talking about a lot of great stuff, rejoicing, having the mind of Christ, and things like that. Those are all good, right? All very good. Um, so Paul has given instruction, and we've gone through this in the previous chapters. He's given instruction on unity and positive interaction among members of the congregation, and he covers these themes in great detail. Uh, why? Well, because there's, there's friction between these, these two women in the congregation there, Iodia and Syntyche. Now, it's very rare for Paul, and I think it's rare for the ministry of the church as a whole, to call out people by name, um, whether you know it's a sermon or, in this case, a letter, which Paul's written to the entire church and probably to other churches as well. It's very rare that someone gets called out by name. That's uh, just not a good way to win people over. I think then we should conclude that these two women were well-known leaders in Philippi. Um, perhaps, and this is just speculation, but uh, it, I think it rings true, wealthier uh, members of the community who were patrons, if you will, providing the church a place to meet in their homes. And... Paul must have had a lot of confidence in their spiritual strength 
uh, to withstand being called out. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what, folks, if I were to call out someone in services, I would expect to never see them again. Uh, so he must have had some real confidence in these women that there was something really solid behind where, what they were up to and what they were doing. And, uh, you know, because it could be damaging to someone. Now, Paul, in previous chapters, as I've mentioned, has a lot to say um, about the positive example that he himself sets, you know? And he points to himself. That also is a very scary proposition for anyone who's ever up here as a speaker. Um, he also points to his fellow workers like Silas, Timothy, and so forth, and the self-sacrifice of Epaphroditus, who's actually a member of Philippi, who's in Rome for a special mission, which we'll touch on a little bit later. Um, the most important example that Paul draws on is, of course, the example of Christ, which is the second chapter in Philippians, the mind of Christ. And uh, the question before these women is how can they persist in quarreling in the presence of Christ, who sacrificed his own rights and privileges, because he did. You know, he who was God came as a human being in the flesh and was willing to suffer all the indignities of just being an average person and he did suffer the indignities, but he gave up his rights and his privileges and his status for them, as he has done for you. So the question before them, I believe, with all that's gone before in the letter is, knowing all this then, how can you keep fighting and bickering, <laughs> squabbling? Now Paul also, he mentions another person there, Clement, and calls upon them to call him and others to help these women resolve their dispute. He mentions a true yoke fellow or a uh, true companion. So he's talking to people in the congregation and asking them to work together with Clement. But we don't know who all these people are, really. My guess is one of the main things that they have to do is, is exercise patience. <laughs> and if someone is in a position of you know, influence within a congregation and, and they've got issues, that can actually be a real problem for people and patience and faith are very necessary. The specifics of the dispute between these two women is not explicitly spelled out, which I think is good. You know, I've speculated a little bit about it in previous chapters uh, where Paul brought out spiritual issues, put them on the table, uh, such as selfish ambition. You know, who's number one? Me, you, no, me. Emptiness and seeking personal glory. But, you know, that could apply to a lot of different situations. And it could be something very, very common and mundane. You know, who's got the best idea for setting up the coffee pots after services? could be something like that. If you've been in God's church long enough, you know that the coffee pot wars do rage. Whatever the nature of the dispute, what's important is Paul still considers them both 
co-workers with him who you know, have contended with him for the sake of the gospel, and their names are written in the book of life. So he's, he's got a good outlook on these people, even though they've got stuff going on. And I think, you know, that we need to have that same kind of patience and perspective on one another, and it's a good example for us. Now, let's move on. Positive thinking. Prayer and positive thinking are where we're going to head. So Paul now offers a nice, succinct, and rousing appeal to take all the previously outlined principles that have gone before in the book of, or the letter to the Philippians, and, uh, you know, principles of the mind of Christ, the example of others, and act on them. So it's more than just knowing this stuff, it's acting on them. And let's just read that in verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, okay, he's kind of put the issue on the table, and then he gets back to more of the positive instruction here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to say it again. And as as we've gone through this letter, I have also said it again and again and again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, because the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's that popular quotation, guard your heart. And the setting is guarding your attitudes, isn't it? And using some positive thinking to guard your heart. So we read rejoice. Why? Because God is near. And gentleness... Gentleness is interesting, and I'm going to take a little bit of time to look into gentleness. We've done this before, but every time I do it, I come up with a a new spin on it. But gentleness is basically seeking peace by establishing common ground with people. You probably read that in some self-help book somewhere about how to get ahead in business or how to get along with people to find common ground, to find common ground. So rejoicing. All right, well, this is a call to live in a mindset of joy, right? And that's been one of, and probably the most important theme in this letter. And rejoice, he says, now because the Lord is near, because God is near. And I believe this should be read in the sense of God's presence, walking with you and beside you in your life, I don't think he's talking about it in a prophetic sense, you know, that the Lord's coming is near. He's talking about God's presence is near to you, helping you, walking with you. If you like, I'm not going to go to these scriptures because I I, I don't want to go on too long, but some good ones, if you're jotting down notes, would be Psalm 145, verse 18 and 19. Psalm 119, verse 151. And Psalm 34, verse 17 through 18. The Lord is near. He's with you. He's walking beside you. And he reminds you often, as we just noted here with all these references to the Psalms, I am with you. Okay. So rejoice always. And when he says rejoice always, I think that adds an extra element to it. So 
rejoice always, I think indicates that we have to exert some effort. We don't just rejoice as a reaction to good things happening in our lives. We exert some effort to have that kind of mindset, the mental habit, not just a once in a while fix. Now, gentleness, gentleness. The Greek word here, the Greek word here is epiekis, epiekis, okay? It's all Greek to me, but that's the word, all right? Epiekis, and uh, when you look into the word and you see the definition and also when you see how else it's applied in scripture, it is about meeting people halfway. Seeking peace through establishing common ground. Whereas I think in, you know, popular usage in the English language, gentleness basically means, you know, to have a soft touch and oh, don't hurt anybody, you know, be gentle with that butterfly that you, you know, you tear its wing. But gentleness is uh, epiekis here. Meeting people halfway, seeking peace through establishing common ground. Let's take a look at some places in Scripture where it's found. So let's go to 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Put your ribbon if you've got one in Philippians. We'll come back there. But 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Speaking here of qualities of leaders in the congregation, etc., 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 not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So here, epiekis is presented as the opposite of violent quarreling, okay? And that could be fisticuffs, but it's probably verbal dueling more than anything. And uh, people love verbal dueling. You know, if you spend any time on uh, places like Twitter or places like that, there's a lot of verbal dueling going on. But the concept here, when we're talking about seeking common ground, is we don't settle matters through brute force, right? Whether in word or in deed. That's not how we settle matters. Okay, Titus 3, verse 2. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle toward everyone. Now, here the concept is presented as the opposite of slanderous talk, slanderous talk about others. And I think this sort of relates to the verbal dueling that I mentioned earlier, um, where we, rather than, you know, we have a disagreement with someone, well, one way to beat them is to put them down, right? That's a great way to get rid of someone's argument. Just, you know, make some comment about, about them that puts them down. Um, whereas a gentle spirit, Epiakis, considers the other person's position and point of view. Simple as that. Rather than trashing them with words. Slander. Okay, James 3, verse 17. James 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, comes from above, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. So it doesn't say gentleness there in the NIV. It might say it, I think, in the New King James. But here, Epiakis is presented as one, a spiritual attribute. 
And if you've gone through the gifts of the Spirit, like in Galatians 5, you know that. Yeah, gentleness. But here's what it means. It also is depicted here as showing a desire to find peaceful solutions and an openness to persuasion. Okay? One more. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Here in reference to slaves, servants, and other problematic issues, says, Slaves, servants, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, or epiekes, gentle, but also to those who are harsh. Okay, so here the concept, epiekes, gentleness, is put in a situation that implies fairness or equity. You know, equity is about seeking a good solution. Not appeasing a person's emotional feelings necessarily, you know, or, or this person's needs, but find something that's fair, equitable. So those are some ways that this same word, epiekis, is used in scripture elsewhere, which I think is a really good way to get the meaning of what the, the scriptures are getting at. Look at where else is it cited in scripture and how is it used? Now this could be directed towards Yodia and Syntyche, as a remedy for their own quarreling, whatever they were up to, whatever they were doing. But now let's, let's take a bit of a caveat, which is a, another way of just saying, well, yes, yes, but. So seeking compromise, tolerance, openness to alternative points of view, those are Christian virtues. Those are biblical virtues. But we must never, never apply that thinking and have that attitude towards sinful behavior. There's a distinction there. It requires that we know what is sin. You know, sin is defined through the commandments and law of God. Okay, so that's not a place to apply these virtues of gentleness. No. Now this, I put it out there because you probably notice this as, as I do. This way of thinking is a great error that prevails in our modern era. Even in groups that call themselves churches. But this idea is an error. Because all the spiritual gifts, gentleness, kindness, joy, etc., all spiritual gifts and virtues must be built on the foundation of the law and the prophets. So you've got to apply them when applicable and not apply them when not applicable. Okay, where are we? Prayer. Prayer. Now, Paul has mentioned prayer here. We read through those verses, and he's putting this forth as a go-to response. And it should, it, it, he's saying this is, a, this is your go-to response um, when faced with cares and worries, threatening situations, trials, tests, etc. And then Paul gives us two subcategories of prayer. And there are more. You know, if you go into an in-depth analysis of what prayer is all about, which would be a great Bible study, 
Uh, you can find more, but Paul only mentions two here, so we're going to just limit ourselves to those two. One, petition. Petition is the form of prayer. It's not the only form of prayer, but petition is making our needs known to God and seeking his assistance. The Lord is near. The Lord is listening. Okay? God wants to hear from us. Okay. Um, but this requires that we bring some stuff to the table. Faith. Confidence. Confidence in his power to do anything about it. Which gets back to some real core issues about who God is, what God is, and it's where, you know, doctrine and understanding help build a foundation for us to act in a positive way, spiritual way. Um, and God does have the power to deal with every situation you bring before him, but he also has the wisdom to know when and when not to use that power. And we need to trust him. So another aspect of prayer is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Again, not the totality of prayer, but definitely a category of prayer, and Paul brings it out here. And this, I believe, is closely related to the attitude of joy or rejoicing, which he's mentioned multiple times in the book of Philippians. Closely related. In that way, we can see trials, tests, and all of life, its ups and downs, through the lens of God's great purpose. And you have probably read scriptures that say things, you know, like, be thankful that you've had to suffer along with Christ. And you think, what? It's because you have perspective that you can be thankful, you can have thanksgiving in the midst of trials, tests, tribulations, not just thank you, God, for that brand new car. I thank God for his blessings, definitely. But also, your attitude of joy is part of thanksgiving because you see the purpose. And with this attitude, we can offer him thanks for more than just stuff that makes us happy. This is a well-known section of Philippians. Um, you're going to love this. You probably know it already. Philippians chapter 4, again, so get back there if you're not there. And let's pick it up here. Um, Philippians, it'd be good to be there, wouldn't it? Yes. Help me, ribbon. And let's see, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, again, this is to you, this is to the church, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. What you dwell upon is going to have an impact on everything you do in life. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. That's where I came up with the title. The peace of God. The God of peace, the peace of God will be with you. And I think it's something that we all, we want, we want peace of mind, you want to have peaceful thoughts. So what Paul is doing here is he's providing a list, and it's not a complete list, obviously, I've left some out. I'm just going to focus on a few highlights, okay? Uh, I could do a whole message on this section of verses. Maybe someone else will take that up. But he gives a list of virtues 
to meditate upon. Now, I don't, I don't know what everybody thinks, but I kind of get the vibe sometimes that, that, that people take this in a different direction. These are not exhortations to admire beautiful things, aesthetic beauty, you know, like a gorgeous sunset. Ah, God made the sunset. Well, he made it, yeah. Or flowers, or puppies, or stuff like that. You know, meditate on things that make you happy. Puppies, kittens. Some people are kitten people. Some people are puppy people. Okay, that's not really what's going on here. The list appeals to ethical concerns. Ethical concerns are the foundational values that drive and motivate our behavior. Why do we do what we do? That's what ethics is all about. And he says, think on these. And the word there is uh, uh, logios. Let me get it right here. Where is it? Logios, logizo. It's a logos, and then it's got an iso on the end, which is the way Greeks write their, their tenses and so forth. And that, that word, logizo, think on these, what it means is to study, to ponder, to carefully consider, to ruminate, chew it over, to sift and decide on these things. So let's just take a look at these ones that I've pulled out of the list. Nobleness, nobleness. All right, nobleness, that's, that's kind of an odd one, isn't it? Nobleness? Well, nobleness made sense to the, full, the uh, people in Philippi because it was part of their culture, a big part of it. It was a virtue that was highly esteemed by the Romans. And this was a Roman colony in the Macedonian area. Nobleness was a big deal. For them, it meant living up to the civic responsibilities that were expected of them due to their rank in society. Okay? You're an important person? Well, you have duties and responsibilities. It's part of being noble. A truly noble person a noble man, a noble woman, was to look out for the interests of those beneath them. Well, that sounds good, right? Except there's parts of it that are kind of... <clears throat> they were definitely beneath you. So it was benevolent, but it was very lofty and very proud. And it also led to a lot of abuse. However, what Paul does is he takes this same word, nobleness, and he repurposes it. He repurposes it towards citizenship and civic duty within the kingdom of God, which we touched on previously when we were going through this, the previous chapters of, of Philippians. Our civic duty within the kingdom of God. And the emphasis on status, which was a huge part of what it meant to be noble in the Roman world, the emphasis on status is, is transformed. How? Through the example of Christ, which we read about in chapter 2, which is humility in, in word and deed. And the acts of nobility or nobleness are found in biblical righteousness with a new emphasis 
on spiritual attitudes like love and joy and humility. They were not part of the equation in the Roman culture for the most part. They based it on military service, honor, political order, having positions, and patronage. How many people depended on you for money and handouts? Those were the substance of noble behavior in the Roman culture. And Paul takes it in a very different direction. He says, okay, this is you know, something that people like to think about. Here's a Christ-like way of dealing with this stuff. You have responsibilities? Yes, indeed you do. Okay, truth. Let's take a look at truth. Very important to Greek people. Of course, this was a city in Greece, and they were really into truth. However, the problem was that they understood truth to be that which could be explained through the reason and the rationality of the human mind, which is good. I'm not saying that you should be irrational or unreasonable, not at all. But the biblical perspective is that compared to God, the human mind is limited. It can only deal with certain things, God-given. Therefore, not all truth and all understanding can be worked out in that rational process of the human mind. And we rely on and need revelation from our Father, our Creator, for access to some of the basic truth assumptions. And I won't go into them today, but the concept there is truth. Where does truth come from, folks? Think about it. All right, purity. Purity. Now, you know, when, when applied to moral actions rather than aesthetics, you know, uh, you know, you might want to focus on the purity of little kittens and babies or things like that. You know, they're so innocent and undefiled. Now, just give them time. Just give them time. That little cat will be ripping your, your, your drapes apart. <clears throat> so... This is applied to moral actions, not aesthetics, loveliness, and it indicates motives, having the right motives. Purity is about motives, a concern for the welfare of others. Um, another example would be transparency rather than duplicity, which is really just another way of saying thou shalt not lie. I mean, the commandments really sum it up in such a pithy direct way that I think sometimes it just blows right past us. But here, you know, it's uh, transparency rather than duplicity. Well, that's, that's one of the commandments at play. Personal integrity, honesty. These are the elements of purity that are really worthy of our attention and focus. All right, one more lovely, uh, lovely, so here's, here's the one I think that gets Bible readers really into thinking about aesthetics more than morality and contemplating the beauty of creation and, and things like that. The use of this word is actually unique to Paul. He's the only one who uses this. And it's been translated as lovely. And again, I'm gonna dig down. I'm gonna tell you what the Greek word is. Uh, it's a compound word, <clears throat> prophilia. Prophilia, all right? So pro, 
means moving towards something in a positive way, you know. I, I'm pro uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers or whatever, you know, I'm in favor of them, okay, I'm pro this, I'm pro that. Uh, moving toward or in favor of, and the other part of the word is philia. And you should know philia because it's one of the, what's that? That is true, but not where I was headed. <laughs> it's one of the forms of love. We've got eros, philia, and agape, right? I think there's another one. But philia is natural affection and friendliness, fondness, based on your association with people, which is all good. You know, you, you don't want to say, oh, I just want agape. I don't want any philia. You want philia. What Paul is saying here, prophilia, is um, be in favor of fondness and affection and having good relationships with people. Prophilia, having brotherly love, sisterly love, congregational love. Prophilia, natural affection, friendliness, fondness. And perhaps this is again directed towards the two women that we've met earlier. So there, there are these are all concepts that were part of very popular, common virtue lists that they would circulate out in, in you know, the Roman Greek society. And there are elements to pagan, non-biblical teaching about virtue that have merit. You can read good stuff from all kinds of people. And I think that's a reasonable expectation in a world that, through human will and human choice, is a mixture this world is a mixture of good and evil. And it's, it, we, we come off, I think, as fools if we say that it's all evil. Our challenge is to separate the good from the evil, which is a challenge. And Paul asks that the people there in Philippi and, and we consider what they have learned from him. Well, he said that. Think about what you've learned from me, what you've seen me do, and what he has received from God, which he elsewhere says in very emphatic terms, which I received and passed on to you. Okay. This isn't stuff that's coming out of the mind of Paul. This is what he's received and is passing on. He's just a very good messenger. And he says, put that into practice and level up your walk with God. Okay. Let's take a look at a couple of other scriptures, lest we get totally bogged down in Philippians. Go to Isaiah 26. Verse 3, which says, You will be kept in perfect peace, those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. So peace comes from thinking. How you think. Go to Amos 3, verse 3. Just so you know, it's not... This is the message of Scripture through and through. Short, sweet, almost complete. Amos 3, verse 3 says, Do two people walk together? Do they get along unless they have agreed to do so? They've made up their mind that they're going to seek peace. They're going to walk together. No, it takes effort. 
Okay. Now, moving on into another section. <clears throat> Acknowledgement of their assistance. Let's read Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. There's that rejoicing joy coming up again. I, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So over the years, the Philippians, the congregation in Philippi, had sent financial assistance to Paul. They backed him up, not just with, you know, go get him, Paul, you know, attaboy, Paul. No, they gave him financial assistance. They backed him up in word and in deed. And they gave it to him at very important times when he was starting up churches in other areas in Macedonia. Um, you know, after spending time setting up this church in Philippi, which you can read about in Acts 16, Paul went on to Thessalonica, which you can read about in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. And then he went on to Berea and Athens and Corinth. <clears throat> So why did Paul still work? He was getting money from Philippi. Maybe they just didn't give him enough. But he said he had all he needed. So, the connection to Thessalonica is actually quite clear. If you just jump down to verse 16, which we'll get to, it says, uh, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So they, they were filling, fulfilling his financial needs while he was working in Thessalonica. But he still worked when he was in Thessalonica, didn't he? Okay. Let's take a look at Thessalonica. Why? Why? Well, even though he had every right to expect and receive payment for preaching and teaching, Paul worked. Why did he do this? Well, in Thessalonica, and we actually went through this about five or six years ago, that's a long time, I know. He did this to set a good example to the people in the congregation, because they had some issues, and one of them was laziness. So, he worked. They had problems with people living off the dole, pretty much getting handouts, not from other church members necessarily, but from, you know, these noble patrons, if you will, which I mentioned kind of a little bit earlier. Uh, so go to 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 through 9. Um, <clears throat> it says, again, we're breaking into a larger section. He says, for you yourselves, people of Thessalonica, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, my example and those who are with me. 
We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. That's why he was working. What about Corinth? Well, in Corinth, it was a little different. On the surface, it might have looked the same, but he did it for different reasons. Uh, in Corinth, he did it to prove that he was just another teacher uh, who put his shingle out in the, uh, in the big forum where people would come to listen to any and all. And Paul would just kind of put his sign out there and he'd have his little collection pot. People could throw money into it. Um, no, that's not what he was all about. He wasn't just another teacher or he wasn't seeking, and this is really more to the point, he wasn't seeking some wealthy, noble patron who would basically take care of him. Because that would compromise his ability perhaps to teach truth. You know, if you're living in someone's house and they're paying for all your food and board, you don't criticize them very much, do you? Nah. So he did it so that he would be free to teach as needed, okay? Uh, he did not teach what he taught for money or for some sliver of local fame. And he spends a great deal of ink contrasting himself to others who were doing just that. But Paul was also subsidized while he was in Corinth. Go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8. It says here, I robbed other churches. I took from other churches by receiving support from you so as to serve you. So while he's in Corinth and he's doing all this stuff, he's getting financial support from other churches. Okay, so perhaps their financial support allowed him to maybe work part-time, you know, so that he could set a good example, but also have the time to minister to these people. Because if he was working full-time, I think he'd have a hard time effectively ministering to them in the way they needed it. Um, if you're interested in, you know, his explanation about his right to receive payment and the right of all the ministry to receive payment, uh, we're in... Uh, 2 Corinthians, you could take a look at, well, actually, 1 Corinthians 9. And I went through this in more detail. I, I kind of went through this when I first started pastoring because I kind of wanted to get it all straight because I felt a little funny getting a paycheck at first. Um, but it, it, it's, it's true. Verse 11 through 15 talks about that. Um, he says, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, it, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have a right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we do not use this right. He's talking about his circumstances there in Corinth. And on the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Then he talks about the example of the priesthood getting their, you know, their pay from the, the altar and so forth. Read the whole chapter and you'll see what he has to say. Because the whole chapter is about this. I think it's kind of misunderstood by people. But... Uh, that's what he's talking, when he talks about money. So let's get back to the people of Philippi. The people in Philippi had learned that Paul was in a pickle again. They'd learned that Paul had been arrested and he was uh, confined in Rome. 
and they wanted to help. Okay, and that's what he's getting at here in this letter. And at that time, things were very different at that time. They had the prison system, the whole way they dealt with things was very different. At that time, if someone was in jail or they were confined or whatever, um, the state didn't pay for everything. They didn't pay for a color TV and three square meals. No, the prisoner had to supply all that stuff themselves. Any medical care, food, drink, the prisoner had to supply that for himself. So I believe that puts an interesting added spin and understanding on the scriptural admonition to visit those who are in prison. Because if you don't visit them while they're in prison, they'll starve to death. It's not so much, I believe, that the scriptures are saying, you know, go and visit the violent criminals in prison, which is more what you would get today. Although not all, not all. It's, it's more complex than that. But the gist of it is that Paul didn't have any means of support except what people gave him as a prisoner. And they were reaching out to help out. But, and Paul says, okay, this is great. This makes me feel so loved. You know, it makes me, fills me with joy. I rejoice, you know, that, you know, you, you, you wanted to show some affection to, toward me, but you didn't have any cause to. Now you do, and I see it, and it's great. But what's really getting him excited is not the receipt of the money, because he goes on to say, I don't really need the money. But he says, the fact that you want to do this, the spiritual maturity of those giving, that he gets very excited about, and he finds joy. So again, true joy comes not from the material circumstances. You know, he's not, oh, I was so joyful when I saw how big and fat and juicy the check was that you sent. That's not what he's getting at. The joy that he has is not from the material circumstances, but from seeing the goal, the spiritual development in the people, how it's moving the whole thing forward. And having that perspective of the end goal of God's great purpose in all things, even getting a little bit of money from the people in Philippi. And again, this is a guiding principle for confronting trials and finding joy in life. Now, there's one little, little verse there at the end. Bing. I can do all things. Have you ever seen anyone like quote this on their wall? Yeah, you see it a lot, don't you? You see people quote this. And I believe verse 13 is often kind of misquoted and, and misused. I don't know exactly where people are coming from, but I see it. And I think it's often quoted as an inspirational verse and used by people who wish to give God credit for their accomplishments, which is that's good, right? Um, that's based on the traditional translation, which I read to you, and you probably have in your Bible, regardless of your translation. It probably says, can do, right? I can do all things. The phrase, though, I just want to point out to you, could just as easily be translated a different way. It could be translated as, I can face all things. I can endure all things. Which changes the meaning quite a bit. And if you think about the context that we're looking at in Paul's life and what's going on in the congregation. Here's Paul. He's in prison. They're sending him money. And he says, I can face all things 
and endure all things. Why? Because he knows that it has a purpose. And so I think that, you know, I'm not saying that the can do is wrong, but it's one way of translating it. These are others. And I actually think they fit the context better. So in the same way, through understanding that's provided by God's Spirit within us, we are able to remain confident and focused and finding that inner strength that we need during trials, like like Paul had during his imprisonment. And we accomplish this by training our minds to think differently, to think right, if you will. And in this way, we can achieve joy, which again is what Paul's talking about over and over and over again in Philippians, and even apologizes for being so repetitive. And this is what, these are the steps that move us forward in God's process of spiritual creation. Uh, Quickly go to James 1 verse 2. where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and other good things. So let's take a look at now verses 14 through 19. Paul goes on and he says, Okay, yeah, I mean, it was good for you to share in my troubles, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I sent out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not, again, that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and I have more than enough And I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul's expressing thanks and gratitude for what they've done for him, for the financial support that they've sent him. But really, what he's saying is that, thank you, thank you so much, but I have all I need. I have all I need, and I don't really require any further aid. Why, I don't know. Perhaps he had people of like mind in Rome, or other places who were helping out. I don't know. Doesn't say. So what they have sent through Epaphroditus is more than enough. More than enough. Thank you very much. And he wants, to, he, he wants to handle this carefully because he doesn't want them to feel rejected or cut out from the ongoing work of spreading the gospel. And he uses a phrase, giving and receiving. Oops. Giving and receiving. And actually this phrase, giving and receiving, is a uh, technical phrase that was very common in Roman society uh, an example in our society might be in similar ways, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or quid pro quo. Those are catchphrases that we use, and everybody knows what you're talking about. 
tit for tat, whatever. Giving and receiving is a sort of a, one of those kind of things, a technical phrase, and uh, I think we should assume that Paul carefully chose this particular phrase for a desired effect. He was an excellent rhetorical writer and speaker. Within the Roman social setting, it characterized the financial aspect of interpersonal relationships. Uh, they had a very different society than ours. We're very um, isolated from one another in our, our day and age, and I don't really need anything from you. Whatever I do need, the government supposedly takes care of it, right? So we're not really having a lot of exchange of goods, are we? That wasn't the way it was in Rome. And this phrase characterized the financial aspect of interpersonal relationships. Now, people in that society in that time tended to reckon and, and consider their relationships as an ongoing balance of credits and debits. Okay? Um, I do this for you, you do this for me. And then I do this for you, and then you do this for me. And you know, we, we have a different outlook, and we kind of look at that as, well, that's not true. Friendship, that's something else. But they looked at, no, this is the substance of uh, relationships. This is what people do. I do this for you. You do this for me. Right? And it all works out great. Giving and receiving. And you had to graciously receive stuff because that was people's way of, that was their love language as a society, okay? And the biblical perspective on the motives that we have for giving and receiving are, are uh, they're different though. You know that. But that's a different sermon. And I've actually given it several times before. I'm gonna put, put it on the table. Giving and receiving, biblical perspective is a little different. Specifically though, Paul wants the people here in Philippi to see and understand the donations and financial support that they've sent to him as payments to God. Credit into your account. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, etc., etc. And as a partnership that they had in the preaching of the gospel with Paul, with God. In other words, he's saying, don't let this be all about the personal relationship you have with me. Paul, uh, quickly go to 2 Samuel 23. Verse 13, just so you know, this is a concept you'll find elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, it says, this is talking about David and his mighty warriors. It says, during the harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And at that time, David was in the stronghold and let the Philistine garrison, and the Philistine garrison at Rephaim. And David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went to risk their lives, and David would not drink it. But he poured it out as an offering to God. I think he wanted them to focus on God, not him. Now to press home this perspective, getting back to Paul, Paul speaks as if he were a priest, right? 
He speaks as if he were a priest. And he actually already used that kind of symbolism and language in the second chapter of Philippian, uh, Philippians in, in verse uh, 17. But he talks as if he were a priest who acts, you know, as a priest does, as an intermediary uh, role, bringing the offerings of the common man before God, which is what, what priests did. And in this sense, he's perhaps, probably, thinking of the free will offerings that you read about in Leviticus uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 17, and more. And in this section of Philippians, I think for us, can be helpful because it helps us put our tithes and our offerings in perspective. Again, perspective is all about joy. Or joy is all about perspective, perhaps I should say. So, tithes, offerings, what are they? Well, looking here at the principles that Paul draws out, they're meaningful sacrifice. They're also partnership with God in the work he is doing to transform human beings into his own likeness and eternal life. It's a big deal, and you get to be part of it. That's a perspective. Instead of viewing tithes and offerings as a, bur a burden, they're an opportunity. It just depends how you spin it, does it not? Go to Romans 12, verse 1. We know the sacrificial system is done away through Christ and his sacrifice, but sacrifice is still a mindset that we have. Romans 12, uh, verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Tithes and offerings are a very real fulfillment of this sort of thinking and acting. Sacrifice. Partnership with God. And Scripture continually exhorts us to think of material goods as uh, transitory, you know, as, as, you know, in the eternal scheme. Here today, gone tomorrow. Don't focus too much on them. However, Scripture is also adamant over and over, and Jesus Christ is adamant over and over again that, what's, that the manner in which we use our material goods is a tangible indicator of our spiritual priorities. What you do with your money says a lot about your insides. So the Bible is not against money. The scriptures, though, are in favor of good stewardship. Final greetings. So the letter, just to, we're going to tie it off. The letter ends with some final greetings from Paul and all those who were gathered around him during this time of imprisonment in Rome. So let's just finish that off reading verses 20 through 23. He says, To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. 
The brothers and sisters who are with me send their greetings, and all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.